0: Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, July the 24th, and we are closing in on finishing out our sermon series and our study of the book of Job. Today, we're going to look at chapters 40 through 41. All through this, the book of Job, it, Job has been crying out of his pain, his bewilderment, his heart's been tortured. And he's been crying out for an interview with God, asking God to explain to him what is what is happening, hoping that he could come before him and ask him some questions about, about what's going on. Suddenly, God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and, and grants him his desire. As Job viewed the situation, God and his judgment was was unfair with him. You know, Job was a righteous man and God was treating him as though he were unrighteous. Surely there's no more common complaint or experience today than this very posture. We we feel we're being unjustly treated and what our lot in life is and and that is what is being that what is being handed to us is somehow not fair and this is why this book of Job is so eternally relevant to us because it deals with the common problems that all of us face at one time or another, uh, t- dealing with suffering, with pain. And now Job is going to be taught by God himself what the true situation is, and there is surely no tougher lesson in to learn in life. There's nothing more difficult for us than to see where we have been wrong when we were sure we were dead right. Life itself has a way of teaching us this as we grow older many of us have had the experience of looking back at some of the convictions perhaps of our of our youth and what we stood for where and where we were absolutely certain was the right thing to do or the right attitude to have and and now we see maybe where we've were wrong or had misinformation Carl Jung the Austrian psychologist puts it this way, in the second half of life the necessity is imposed of recognizing no longer the validity of our formal ideals but of their contraries, of perceiving the error in what was previously our conviction, of sensing the untruth in what was our truth and of weighing the degree of opposition and even of hostility in what we took to be love. How many of us have felt like that? Looking back we've We've seen that we thought was an action of love was really self-centered and and it was part of our own pride and our desire. Life has a way of teaching us that. And that is what God is teaching Job now, helping him to see that his righteousness was an external matter only. And internally there was a deep and serious problem. And this is perhaps the toughest lesson to learn. And in the last time we were together we looked at Job and and how God took Job on this extended tour of the universe and showed him the kind of a God that he was in fact up against—the the being Job was challenging and calling to account—and God God revealed His creative wisdom and all that He had made in the in the forces of nature, and and He subjected Job to this exam on on natural subjects, and Job was not able to answer a single question, not one. And 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 so in our days now of, of certain of science and intellect, we we found that even now we, we we can only answer parts of two or three of the questions in that whole series and, and so God has also showed Job his his care of the animal world and asked him if he could handle that and Job ended the account with his hand on his mouth, silenced, but still not convinced. And so now God takes up the argument again, and in chapter 40, verse 6, he, he brings up another matter with Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you declare to me, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? God's still speaking out of the whirling wind before Job. What, what an experience it must have been to have this voice coming out of the wind. And and God is still employing the great symbol of the Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit's power, the mighty rushing wind. This time he brings Job another issue. Can you handle the moral government of earth? Job has already admitted that he's not in God's league when it comes to understanding the world of nature and caring for the animal creation. And now God says, well, what about the moral realm? That is the, the the realm that you have been charging me with fault. Can, can you handle that? Are you able to put me in the wrong in this area of <coughs> excuse me of morality and justice and fairness? And then in the next section, he invites Job um, to, to come to the throne of God, as it were, to see what he would do with the problems God has to face. And picking up in verse 9, have, have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Deck yourself with majesty and splendor and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Put forth the overflowings of your anger and look at everyone that is proud and obeys him. Look at at everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can give you victory. So God's challenge to Job is, hey, can you look and sound like God? Can you clothe yourself with majesty and dignity so that all the created universe is immediately aware that you are being capable of handling them and all their problems? Can you appear like God, look like God? And especially, can you handle the problem of the proud? Now, God puts his finger on what has been the problem running all through the book of Job. The problem is that is in Job's heart, though he does not know it. Can you handle the proud? Can you find a way to abase to these proud, struggling creatures who think they have, a, have all that they need to handle life and bring them low. Can you do that? We know how, in our own time, what a difficult problem this is. It's, it's not easy to run the earth. It's not easy to bring justice. And God says, can you do that, Job? Can you handle proud men and bring them low? And, and even if necessary, consign them to the world below Can you do that? If you can, Job, then I'll be willing to grant that you are able to handle your own problem and give yourself victory as you claim you have. Now, God is moving right in on the problem with Job. In the next sections, he brings before us two amazing animals, one called behemoth, which is a land animal for the most part, and one called Leviathan, which is a sea creature. Now, commentators have had a great deal of difficulty trying to determine just Which animals in our natural world are referred to here? Some think that the behemoth was either the hippopotamus or maybe an elephant or rhinoceros, like a mammoth type creature. Um, Others say that the Leviathan is the crocodile, though some think it could be the whale. Whatever version you read will, will present these animals in one form. Or another, according to the interpretive conviction of the commentator or the editors of the version. And for the most part, this is my opinion, I, I think that's somewhat of of putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. It's a little bit of a waste of time to argue which animals are here before, simply because the language employed here goes beyond the actual realm. In the last section where God was taking Job through a tour of his created universe, all the animals were recognizable. They were in line with what anyone can still observe in nature about, you know, about these animals, although they were described in poetic language. But here we have something that goes beyond the natural So some commentators have felt that these are mythical creatures, legendary creatures, um, like the unicorn, the dragon. But I think if we admit that it is mythical language, we can also see that it's very likely is referring not to myth, but to supernatural beings. Um, These beasts that appear here are symbolic beasts tied to animals in the natural realm as symbols of that which is invisible and supernatural. The reason that I think this is a decent conclusion is because... This is what scripture does in a lot of places in the book of Daniel and Zechariah and Revelation. Forces on the earth are symbolized by beasts, beasts that rise up out of the sea, beasts that come up on the land. They symbolize movements, individuals, leaders, and even invisible and supernatural powers. And here we have another example of of that kind of thing. So, in fact, we're given some help. And some of the other scriptures to recognize What some of these beasts are Isaiah 27 tells us plainly what Leviathan represents In the opening verses of chapter 27 Isaiah says in that day Referring to the final day The great day of the Lord The Lord with his hard and great and strong sword Will punish Leviathan The fleeing serpent Leviathan the twisting serpent And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea It's interesting that the names of these beasts in Hebrew means, means something very significant. Behemoth is the Hebrew word for beast in, in the plural form. So it's not just a beast, but all beasts sort of lumped together are symbolized by behemoth, while leviathan means folded one. We can see that in the description of a dragon with this elongated body that is always represented as sort of folded up like a snake, and here in Isaiah, we're told very plainly that Leviathan is twisting, folding serpent. It's also called the dragon that is in the sea. Now, our mind, I'm sure, has already maybe even run ahead to the section of Revelation, where in chapter 13, we have two beasts emerging that dominate the scene in the last days. One is the beast that comes up out of the sea, and the beast reigns over the waters, which we are told in Revelation represent the multitudes of people on the earth and the other beast is a beast that comes up on the land and behind both of these beasts is still a third incredible animal called the great dragon of chapter 12 and they are told we're told plainly that the dragon is Satan and then he gives his power and authority to the beast now tracing the symbolism through and applying it here in the book of Job I think what we have is this is say is it's warranted to say that these beasts represent satanic power made visible in terms of earthly existence. So the first of these beasts, behemoth represents the satanic twist that, that we all labor with and struggle against in our own lives, which the Bible calls the flesh. It's the fallen nature within us, our humanity, all of us with its continual desire to sort of assert itself and live for itself. And the second beast represents the world and all its vast influence on all every one of us pressuring us to conform to to reflect the values and attitudes of those around us dominating all of our thinking and all of our life in every possible way and behind them both is the devil satan with his cunning wisdom and power incredible in his might and in control of human events so what god then is is sort of putting before job is a very pertinent question for all of us are we able to handle the enemy within And the enemy without, especially that malicious being who is behind them all the world, the flesh, Satan. So, one commentator, Wordsworth, puts it this way it seems probable that behemoth represents the evil one actually or acting in the animal and the carnal elements of man's own constitution, and that Leviathan symbolizes the evil one energizing as his external enemy, and man's outside. So behemoth is the enemy within us. Leviathan is the enemy without us, the world, the flesh, the devil. So now sort of using that to guide us as we look at these two beings, we see how God puts them before Job in verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly he makes his tail stiff like a cedar the sinews of his thighs are knit together the his bones are tubes of bronze his limbs like bars of iron so incredible strength complete self-sufficiency that's the picture here it's an animal so well adapted to its environment that's completely self-sufficient it is the symbol of strength and sufficiency and and then verse 9's 19 is interesting. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. It's another of those verses which in the original Hebrew language is difficult to understand. So maybe the, the new English Bible helps us a little bit and it reads he's the chief of God's works made to be a tyrant over his peers. Here's an animal that stands for that sense of tyranny that wants to rule over everyone else and it is the picture of self-centeredness it is the tyranny within us that wants to be in dom- domination and in control of everything in our in our lives and then Going on in verse twenty, for the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play under the lotus plants he lies in the covert of the reeds and in the marsh, for his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brooks surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened; he is confident. Through Jordan rushes, though, though Jordan rushes against his mouth, can one take him with hooks or pierce his nose with a snare? So the obvious answer to all those questions is here's a being that's so self-sufficient, so completely in control that he's filled with self-confidence no matter what happens to him. So so we have the qualities of self-sufficiency, self-centeredness, and self-confidence. So what better description of this enemy within us, our inheritance from the first man, from Adam, this independent spirit that says, I don't need God nor anyone or anything else. I am my own person. I am sufficient to myself. It works great with our ideology as Americans of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, of manifest destiny. I read four descriptions, or, or I read some descriptions the other day um, about, about British people. Um, kind of funny. Um, A Welshman prays on his knees and on his neighbors. A Scotsman keeps Sunday and everything else he can uh, lay his hands on. An Irishman does not know what he believes but is ready to die for it. And an Englishman is a self-made man and worships his creator. Well, we may laugh at that application to people of the UK, but it applies, obviously, to the whole human race. We are all like this. We uphold this independent spirit we glorify it in our movies and in our television and our art we hold it up before our young people as it's something to be sort of um followed and and sought after we claim it as the american way of life it is all characterized by self-sufficiency self-centeredness and self confidence we take courses to increase this in spirit this spirit within us um, the self help section of literature is the largest section in any bookstore. Yet God says that this is the enemy, that this is what we have to overcome. And then in chapter 41, we get this other animal, Leviathan, who's coming at us. This, this first was a land animal. This is a water animal. And we get this vivid detailed description of it through this account. It's, it's, it's untamability. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will he? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your maidens? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among, among merchants? So in the, all the course of human history, who's ever been able to reform the world and to make it serve the ends of humanity? The whole nature of the struggle of history is to take the world system with all of its problems of relationships, its pride and all of its self-sufficiency, and make it serve the ends of humanity. This is why every government, every administration struggles with the same problems. It's been true all the way back through history to the earliest dawn of recorded events. No one has ever been able to master the problems of the world and its ways because our system is wrong. Every generation of young people growing up senses it deep in its bones and somehow finds a means of expressing its revolt against the system, quote unquote. This is the system that is described to us here. It it lays its heavy hand of control on all of us and insists that we conform to its system values, its illusions of what's important and profitable. And we all find ourselves constantly living under this tremendous pressure and finding ourselves frankly, unable to resist it, just as it's described here. We can't make it serve us. We can't control it. And so then God goes on to describe how unconquerable it is. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay hands on him. Think of think of the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is disappointed. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up, Job 41 seven through 10. Think back through history and of all the proud conquerors with their spirit, their ferociousness that would not tolerate opposition. How many times, how many times we've been afraid to try to oppose them. And then in the second half of verse 10 and verse 11, God interjects a little parenthesis here for Job to consider. If you can't handle this beast, he says, who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What God argues is, Job, if you can't handle the scrub team, if you can't handle the B team, what are you going to do with, when the varsity plays? Or as Jeremiah puts it, if you faint and you're weary when you run with the footmen, what are you going to do against horses? God says, I handle Leviathan all the time. That's my problem, and I can handle it. But Job, what are you going to do if you can't handle him? How do you ever hope to challenge me? It's a good question for Job to consider. And then God goes on to describe Leviathan further. He speaks of his ability to defend himself in verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip him off his outer garment? Who can penetrate his double coat of mail? Who can open the doors of his face round about his teeth and tear his terror? His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal one is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and can't be separated. We, we can see why many have thought this was a crocodile. It's because of the description of the overlapping shields on the back and the sides. But the section goes on beyond the crocodile. The crocodile. It's obviously a picture of some a deeply entrenched, well-defended system that can't be overthrown. And here we read of it's, awesomeness fierceness frightening power he sneezes flash he's sneezing his sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn out of his mouth goes flaming torches sparks of fire leap forth out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes his breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh cleave together, firmly cast upon him, and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, hard as the nether millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid at the crashing they are beside themselves. What a picture of strength and power, the great dragon breathing out flame from its nostrils and wiping out everything that comes against him. And then we have a section, again, on his invulnerability and how res- irresistible he is. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow can't make him flee. For, for him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like the sharp pot herds. He he spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. Then his power, he makes the deep boil like a pot and makes the sea like a pot of ointment, making him, behind him, he leaves a a shining wake, one that one would think the the deep uh, to to be hoary. And then finally, the secret of his life, his pride. Upon the earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He beholds everything that is high. He is the king over all the sons of pride. What a creature, what a being. This incredible beast is king over all the sons of pride. He teaches humanity how to act in pride and independence and self-sufficiency. He works it into this system of control, lays it over industry, labor, government, art, music, social, economic, every, every kind. All works. It all works out together so that... It rises up against God in his power and his strength. This is the beast that Job, and arguably you and I, <laughs> are up against. Now, God's question is, Job, are you able to handle this? And of course, God has brought Job to an awareness that these are the very things Job has in his own heart and life, and they represent a power which he has no control over. And I think at this point, it's not said in the account, but I think God has made clear to Job what we were informed of at the very beginning of the book, that behind his sickness, his pain, this long drawn out agony lies this intense struggle with the satanic power. We know that this is the way the book began, but Job did not know that until this point. And at last, he's given a strong hint that the reason behind his illness is not his own failure or his own willful misdeeds. But it is a deep and a serious problem that's so embedded in his nature that he's really not even aware that it exists. Yet, it's absolutely destroying him. This is what God has to deal with. And this is what he still, he still deals with, with us, with you and I. And so then we get Job's reaction. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. His first reaction is a new view of God himself. Notice the distinction that he makes here or the subject that he brings out. I know that you can do all things. God is omnipotent. Job knew that from the very beginning, but now he sees it expanded tremendously. He also sees the sovereignty of God that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The amazing mystery. Is that nothing that God ever plans ever sets aside man's responsibility. Yet nothing man ever chooses thwarts the purpose that God intends to carry out. Isn't that amazing? Job has now learned that God is a sovereign being and that all he does is right. It is not only mighty, but it's right. It is in line with his character of love. He is consistent, always with himself. And then Job, when he sees God this way, sees himself rightly, accurately. And this is always true. If we cannot understand ourselves, it is because we do not know our God. When man loses God, he always loses himself. But when humanity, when a man or a woman discovers God, well, then they find themselves. And this is what Job sees. Now he has a new view of himself. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God first, God's first address to him. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. Here, He's quoting God's second address to him. I had heard of of you by by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes my eyes see you, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Notice the difference. I heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. The inner eye of the heart sees the nature of God, and the result? well Job says, I despise myself. Now that is repentance. What he is really doing is agreeing with what God says about him. He quotes what God says twice. In fact, he says, Lord, you asked me, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? You're right, Lord. It's me. That is what I have been doing. I am ignorant. I am ignorant. I do not know enough to begin to challenge the wisdom of the Almighty. I am ignorant. I'm limited I speak without even knowing what I'm talking about. You are quite right, Lord. It is me. And then he quotes God again. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. He's, he's saying, Lord, you are right about that too. I've been arrogant. I've been thinking I could answer your questions and that I would even ask you questions that you could not answer. Lord, I have been arrogant and I see that now. Something within me has been proud it's been lifted up it's been self-righteous confident that i was right i've been wrong all along and so he says lord i despise myself you see job has never been in this place before he is learning at last the hardest lesson of life what god seeks to teach us all the problem is never in others or in god the problem is in us And it is a problem that only God can handle. We are unable, unequipped to handle it ourselves. All we can do is put it back in his gracious hands. Now, it looks as though God has humiliated Job and brought this poor brokenhearted man down into the dust almost cruelly but it's not cruelty it is love because at this point when job has finally given up trying to defend himself and justify himself god begins to heal and to pour into this man's life blessings that he never dreamed of now this is the story of the whole scripture isn't it everywhere the scripture everywhere the scriptures seek to tell us this jesus said Blessed are the poor in spirit, the men and women who are bankrupt in themselves, who stop counting on what they've got to make it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And God will begin to heal a life that repents before him and begin to fill it with blessing and honor and glory and power. And none of these things will be worth one whit of the glory and of the joy that we've discovered in coming into a relationship with the God of the universe And that is what we're going to see in the closing section of Job. Here he is now, confessing his sin, but discovering the gift of forgiveness. Amen, and God bless.